Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. You're joined here by two real estate investors and professionals in the real estate space. My name is Daniel Foch. I'm an investor and real estate broker. And who do I have on the other end here? You've got your buddy, Nick. Pleasure to be here, Dan, as always. What are we talking about today? We have got a hell of an episode lined up. Yeah. So I feel like we're a little late to the party because we had like a, uh, we pre recorded like four episodes, but I was actually kind of glad because we weren't reporting on a lot of this, um, these US banking failures with incomplete information. So now a lot more time has elapsed and we're actually at the point where UBS is making an offer to purchase Credit Suisse. Um, which is fun because I'm, I'm Swiss. So I like talking about what's going on in the Swiss banks. But today we're going to be talking about how the global banking system reaching a state of crisis could impact real estate investors, specifically um, pondering about this and trying to answer a few key questions. So number one, the demise of a few banks, mo- most notably Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, and now Credit Suisse. Uh, could we see similar financial institutions in Canada suffering similar fates? Or is Canada's perception of global strength and finance due to the banking oligopoly or uh, oligopolistic banking market that we have here? Are we seeing a push toward that similar type of oligopoly in other countries? And will rates come down sooner as a result of recessions? What are bond yields telling us? So that's a quick summary of kind of the stuff we're going we're gonna to cover today. Before we do that, we got a review here for you. Nick, can you read this one for me? Yeah, we got to start things off on a positive note here. And I'm not going to lie. I like the word oligopoly. It's kind of, kind of fun to say. And I'm sure we'll say it a couple more times during this episode. Um, the title of this review is five stars. Ontario escapee likes it. I read my initial fear when I tuned in was that it was going to be hit with a bunch of jargon and information specific to people who are serial real estate investors. I appreciate their awareness of the fact that not everyone lives in Toronto and their constant jokes about it. There we go. That's good. Having Someone likes our th- jokes. <laughs> we'll put that on the list of three people that have liked our jokes so far. Having survived three years in Ontario, wow, survived, and having moved back to BC, I still find their content quite relevant. I'm kind of curious about the mortgage situation with mobile, modular, and manufactured homes and other unusual types of housing. Yurts. For instance, we are living in strained times, which require consideration of such options. Keep creating great shows, guys. I'm learning a lot. Love the definitions. Thank you very much. You're, you strike a good balance of friendly and informative. Thank very you. Very thoughtful. Very thoughtful Thank, uh, review. That's, yes. And it's actually written by Sparkle or Spark L13. So thank you so much for that review. That means a lot. We will keep creating great shows. And that is a really great question, Dan. Yeah, they actually checked a lot of the boxes there. They, we, you know, we said to people, if you're going to leave us a review, tell us where you're tuning in from and ask us a question. So, um, thank you for, for following the instructions and, and trying to create value for us and leaving a review like that. I actually have a perfect deal of the day and sort of have want section for that question. So the haves and wants and deal of the day as analyzed on landlord.io's deal analyzer. So this is an island Airbnb running a 6% cap rate with a bunch of dome tents on it. It currently has a private credit in place. So that's, typically the scenario you're going to be in with this type of property. Um, you'd need like a VTB or private lending usually to execute something like um, Sparkel is describing. 
I guess the you know the other thing is you can often see financing from manufacturers. So people who are doing manufactured homes like Viceroy or Royal Homes, they often have in-house financing programs. So they'll lend you the house and you can pay it off over time. So all you got to do is find a way to finance the land. Land, we did a whole episode on that, but um, you know we we can talk a little bit more thoroughly in some future episodes about structuring land financing deals. Um, you may be able to find a lender for a deal like this, but it is pretty tough. I, I'm actually thinking of proposing something with the new federal housing grant that Justin Trudeau just announced in Guelph, um, which ironically, I once won a federal housing grant myself in Guelph while attending Guelph University. So if you want to reach out more specifically about this stuff, uh, send me a message on that. It'd be cool if we could actually collaborate like the whole show on putting together one of those uh, affordable housing proposals with that new $4 billion program. Um, we'll do a whole episode on what that is. We haven't had a chance to go through the whole policy initiative yet. Yeah, I love it. Um, let's jump to the haves and wants section. A want from a listener that is looking for vacant land, willing to VTB anywhere in North America to build off-grid food forests with cabins for Airbnb. Now, we've told this guy that we'd partner with him because this sounds pretty darn cool. Um, so reach out if you've got anything that matches that description. Another we have this, if you want it, is an Aurelia fourplex. Now, Aurelia is a great town in Ontario, kind of the gateway to the north. Uh, a fourplex willing to VTB up to 80% loan to value at cash flows. Uh, asking price 900000 Net operating income is over 50000 And the cap rate is pushing a six at 5.76% cap rate. Do you want to quickly go through like the whole cash flow scenario on that? Like income, monthly rents? All yeah, the way sure. To, like, Let's month, do it quick. I just kind of maybe worth looking at just like quickly going through what a net, um, you know, what that net annual cash flow would look like. It's not, not a huge cash on cash return, but, you know, for somebody who, um, can't get a, a traditional mortgage and needs a VTB and really, really wants to get into investing, it might not be a bad option. Yeah, good call. Okay, so let's do this. We've got uh, four units, a three-bedroom for 1230 a two-bedroom for 1270 another two-bedroom for 1700 and another two-bedroom for 1600 That puts the monthly income at 5800 and the effective gross annual income at 69600 uh, The expenses annually total just under 18000 at 17870 $8, including maintenance, vacancy, insurance, gas, hydro, water, and taxes. Uh, the VTB terms are a 25% down payment of $225,000 plus closing costs, and then a 75% vendor take back at $675,000. Now, that'll equal blended monthly payments on a two-year term at 5% interest rates amortized over 25 years, leaving your monthly Payment in cash flow at three thousand nine hundred twenty-five, and your net monthly income at four thousand three hundred seventeen. So that's your gross net- monthly income there. That one I I, I mistyped that. I think. Oh, so my yeah. my apologies. Your net annual cash flow is four thousand seven hundred and three dollars. Only a two percent cash on cash return, but that's not bad, especially with the potential rent upside for two of those units, and for someone that may be able to buy a place with the VTB if they can't qualify for a mortgage and you really want to get invested and you're, you're cash rich, you, you can find cash, but you can't qualify for a mortgage. So that is the details on that deal. If you want us to send you the details of that fourplex in Aurelia that we have a VTB on that's off market, 
let us know and we'd be happy to do so. Yeah, Dan, what comes, else do you have for us? Yeah, that one comes from a listener. Actually, he reached out and he was like, I really want to test the, you know, the quality of the audience and like see if we can get some deals going here. And, and he just, just wanted to push this deal out to the audience. So I thought that was pretty cool. Could be a potentially really exciting opportunity if we execute. We are executing deals, by the way, from the show. Like we just did uh, four, I think, in, in Alberta. Um, and, and so it would be nice to, to start connecting people coast to coast on transacting real estate. Um, last thing I'm going to mention here is the meetups, uh, go on meetup.com. We put a link in the show notes, uh, 400 members strong coast to coast. There's groups in Vancouver, Edmonton, Calgary, Toronto, GTA, Halifax, and St. John's. Um, Edmonton meetup is March 23rd. This episode might be, have, have come and gone, um, before that or after that, sorry. Calgary meetup happened, uh, first Thursday of every month. That's with Cash and Homes and Calvert Home Mick. Um, and we'll be, we're going to be in Vancouver in the first week of April to interview Chip Wilson for the show. Give us a shout. We're doing a meetup there as well. Just trying to finalize some logistics. If you want to help out with that or attend or, uh, you know, want to meet, uh, we'd, we'd love to hear from you. Okay. Let's, I'm going to quickly go through this first article here, uh, from the Bank of Canada website, coordinated central bank action to enhance provision for us dollar liquidity. I think this one just came out today and like we're starting to get more and more scary headlines. So I'm kind of going in reverse chronologically. Um, cause I was just adding to these show notes as more ugly stuff kept, to, uh, rearing its ugly head, let's say. So the Bank of Canada, Bank of England, Bank of Japan, European Central Bank, Federal Reserve, and the Swiss National Bank are today announcing a coordinated action to enhance the provision of liquidity via the standing US dollar liquidity swap line arrangements. To improve swap lines effectiveness and providing US dollar funding, the central banks currently offering US dollar operations have agreed to increase the frequency of seven-day maturity operations from weekly to daily, so 7x faster or more efficient. Um, these daily operations will commence Monday, March 20th, and will continue at least through the end of April. The network of swap lines among these uh, central banks is set uh, as a set of available standing facilities and serves as an important liquidity backstop to ease strains in global funding markets, thereby helping to mitigate the effects of such strains on the supply of credit to households and businesses. So, uh, I mean, a couple scary terms in there. I think we're starting to see a lot of these like, and, you know, we've been saying this for months, you know, Q2 is going to start, you're really going to start hearing recession, right? You start, start hearing a lot of those scary terms. And so, this isn't something that I would say is, is a bullish factor. This is them trying to solve these problems. Um, and, and, and I guess the next question is, what are these problems, Nick? So, um, maybe just jump into, we can go to the first, the first, uh, email or the first article here from the real deal about, you know, everyone's favorite Silicon Valley bank and the real estate exposure <laughs> there. Yeah. So again, from the real deal, which is a, uh, a great operation out of New York City that covers all things real estate. Uh, the stunning failure of Silicon Valley Bank, which was shut down by state regulators and taken over by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, otherwise known as the FDIC, on Friday morning sent shockwaves through the tech industry. But it could have more major implications for real estate too. Though the bank primarily lent to venture capital and private equity firms, about 15% of the loans on its books were secured by residential mortgages and commercial real estate. That's according to its 2022 financial report. As the FDIC works to sell off SVBs, that's Silicon Valley's bank's assets, and pay out insured and uninsured deposits, these loans will have to change hands. 
The bank's fall has also led to a broader stock sell-off that prompted stock exchanges to halt trading on a number of regional banks, including prominent commercial real estate lenders, Signature Bank, and First Republic Bank. So SVB held about $8.3 billion worth of loans secured by personal resident residents' mortgages at the end of last year, and another $138 million linked to home equity credit lines. So they did have some, some real estate exposure to their lending practices. The bank also held about $2.6 billion in commercial real estate loans. Some 35% of its commercial-backed loans were on multifamily properties. Office properties accounted for 21%. In its annual report, SVB said its commercial-backed loans are or may involve a higher risk of default compared to our other types of loans. And you're seeing this in a lot of those headlines coming out about um, major landlord failures, like major, like Brookfield and guys like that in in the in um, the San Francisco and LA market, the DTLA fund and San Francisco. Um, so the uncertainty amount around the economic and residual effects of the pandemic on retail hotels and offices. The bank increased its exposure to commercial real estate in 2021 when it acquired Boston Private for $900 million, it said in the report. SVB made fewer large portfolio changes. Loans of $30 million or more totaled $250 million, according to the SEC filings. That's the Securities and Exchange Commission, one of the governing bodies for banks and other financial institutions in the States. Approximately 27% of its outstanding loan balances were to borrowers based in California. Through the bank's reports, do not provide ge- geographical breakdowns uh, of its real estate loans. The firm had also invested $1.5 billion in commercial mortgage-backed securities, otherwise known as CMBSs, making up just over 1% of its secured portfolio at the end of 2022. SVB's collapse marks the second biggest bank failure in U.S. history and the largest since the 2008 financial crisis. The California Department of Financial Protection and Innovation closed the bank Friday morning after it reported huge losses on its bank on its bond holdings, which suffered in value after interest rates rose last year. Customers then started requesting cash out deposits faster than the bank expected, prompting it to sell off its bond holdings at a loss. Between this and a few other headlines out of California, it looks like Cali could kind of emerge as the ground zero for the U.S. real estate and banking blow off. Brookfield defaults on $784 million of on loans connected to, as Dan mentioned, the DTLA office towers and San Francisco's largest landlords defaults on massive loans as well. So what does this mean for the future of the city's real estate? And PIMCO owned office landlord defaults on a $1.7 billion mortgage. So these aren't, you know, mom and pop investors that are in arrears. These are major corporate real estate titans and, and banking institutions that are that are failing or that are not able to pay back their loans. Dan, what do yeah. you think? Yeah, so let's go over this. So, I mean, eight point three billion is a, a drop in the in the ocean in U.S. terms, right? Like it's, but but it is like one percent of of all Canadian mortgages. So you know, like like size wise. So just getting an idea for context. Apparently, SVB was offering very low mortgage rates to tech workers. So they told customers they were able to offer that because they kept mortgages on their book versus selling them to Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac through their kind of like mortgage. The, the way they in, in um, Canada, CMHC buys a lot of mortgage uh, and packages them into mortgage-backed securities. Um, but the challenge 
challenge was because they were issuing debt, so they were they were writing loans and then they were taking deposits from companies who need financial agility, tech companies in a lot of cases who need ca- big cash calls quickly. Um, they had what, what's called a duration mix mat- mismatch. So they were putting mortgage money out in long term products, and they were they were lending to people who needed short term access to their money, and that's really what created this credit constraint. Um, the challenge here is they'd take capital p- from people who needed that liquidity, tech startups, move fast and break things, et cetera, et cetera. And then lending it out to long-term credit products. Um, I'd say the real estate impact will be minor in, in this one because the borrow is agnostic to the lender, even as the lender changes hands. So like somebody's gonna, well, I think somebody already did buy SVB. Um, and then the, like if you're a borrower, you're it's probably still on SVB paper. You don't even know. Maybe you get a letter in the mail, like, Hey, we, you know, you're paying your mortgage to us right now. Nothing changes. Um, and so you wouldn't really know the bigger issue is the perception. And this is what's going to come out, I think, over the next couple of days with whether or not the Fed does anything about um, about this and and what's happening sort of at the chain reaction with other banks is the perception of, of systemic US banks risk, uh, whether it's real or perception uh, and the valuations of venture, venture capital startups that had millions in um, Silicon Valley Bank. And uh, there's one other note that was a, a funny headline that just said S, um, SVB collapse was the first Twitter fueled bank run, which I thought was funny. So is this like we've got like the Reddit people that that started GameStop and, and yeah. Wall Street bets and all that? And now we've got Twitter fueling bank runs. This is a lot of time to be alive. Um, I just want to pivot to another bank that was that didn't get enough attention, in my opinion. It was kind of swept under the rug, and it, but it's definitely worth med- mentioning, and that is Signature Bank. So I'm going to read an excerpt from another article from our friends at The Real Deal. Bank regulators on Sunday evening announced that they have closed Signature Bank as they try to prevent a banking crisis spurred by the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. The state's Department of Financial Services took possession of Signature, a major multifamily lender in New York, to protect depositors. So this is directly affecting real estate now. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, that's the FDIC, was appointed receiver of the bank. A joint release by the Treasury Department, the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, and the FDIC shortly after 6 p.m. said the FDIC would protect all depositors at California-based Silicon Valley Bank. Quote, we are also announcing a similar systemic risk exception for Signature Bank which was closed today by its state chartering authority, quote, the statement read. Yeah. So, I mean, it is crazy that the FDIC is already using the word systemic risk from my perspective. Um, New York-based signature is FDIC insured with total assets of $110 billion and total deposits of $89 billion. Much of it is landlord's money as of December 31st. This is a very big deal for New York City Housing, tweeted Jay Martin, executive director of the Landlord Group Community Housing Improvement Program. Many multifamily businesses bank with Signature and similar regional banks. Quick action here to make depositors whole was necessary, and it's good news to see the Fed assuring that. Um, there's another example that we mentioned kind of in passing before, which is First Republic Bank, a major multifamily and commercial real estate lender on the West Coast. They're also exploring sale, um, as well as other options to shore up liquidity. Um, so Signature had funded about 35.7 billion worth of real estate loans, about 48% of the bank's total loans. So they're a lot. That's a, that's a high percentage. Like you wouldn't see that. That's basically a real estate lender at that point, a mortgage lender. If, you know, basically as high as they can get without risking being under diversified. 
is exposed to real estate. Um, but the fallout of the cryptocurrency crash left the bank scrambling to reassure investors that its exposure to crypto was not a threat. And obviously it wouldn't be if it's, you know, if they're 48% real estate exposure. Um, Governor Kathy Hochul said in a statement, I hope these actions provide increased confidence in the stability of our banking system. Regulators sh- shut down Silicon Valley Bank late last week after a run on deposits left a bank weakened. That sentiment uh, rippled through Wall Street as Signature and other banks saw their stock prices fall. Um, Signature share price fell 25% on Friday and then was temporarily halted. I feel like it was down like 60% from the peak there. Yeah, crazy volatility. And I mean, one of the things that if you've been keeping up with this, you've probably heard the term bank run being discussed. That seems to be one of the big themes here. And you know, I'm about to give you a definition here. So a bank run occurs when a large number of bank customers withdraw their deposits because they believe the bank might fail. As more people withdraw their deposits, the likelihood of defaults increases, and this encourages further withdrawals. This can destabilize the bank to the point where it faces bankruptcy. Now, I remember this because I watch It's a Wonderful Life every Christmas with my family, and there is a bank run in that movie. If anyone has ever watched that movie, go watch it. It's a tearjerker. It's a heartwarming movie. But that's the first time I ever saw something like a bank run. Um, but it, it goes back and I, you know, Dan, to me, it just plays into that sentiment role so hard, right? Like things start getting worse. So people start reacting and they make it worse. Then things get worse again and people pull out money and then inev- inevitably causing a bank run and, and these banks to fail. Um, now, a lot of people say that bank runs are less likely to happen in Canada or couldn't happen in Canada because of our very fun word, oligarchy. Oligopoly. Oligarchy is the political version. Oligopoly. You got <laughs> That's it. it. So what would you say to that? I mean, I, generally, I would say they're wrong is my short answer. And, and it's, it's a hard comparison to make because like the US banking system is so capitalistic and there's so many of these smaller regional players and people think, oh, we don't have those in Canada. Or if we do, they're all owned by like a bunch of credit unions are owned by Desjardins as an example, right? Like, um, but there are a lot of these smaller local credit unions and they function in a very similar way. But if you're calling it a bank run, like our chartered banks are pretty well capitalized. Um, but our deposit insurance is also significantly lower. Like I think our deposit insurance is, but is under a hundred thousand dollars. Whereas in the States it's $250,000. Um, and also the liquidity requirements of, of these chartered banks has been reduced over as a response, emergency response to COVID. So, I mean, I would, I'm willing to bet it could possibly happen in, in the large Canadian banks. Um, I'd, I'd say the likelihood of it happening is is the different question. Like the reality is this is the bigger part is systemically Canadians don't save money. Like it's not a secular trend. We don't have a lot of cash savings. Most of our people, most of like when you hear Canadians have record savings, it's they have record equity in their houses. So we're not keeping liquid savings in banks. So it's not like we could even do a bank run because most of us don't have money in the bank to go run. Uh, so that's, but anyway, so I'll give an example and and I this is how things I think tie into real estate, especially in Canada. So starting April nineteenth, twenty seventeen, and I remember this day so distinctly. I remember thinking like, oh, this is our this is this is our generation's 08. I was laying in bed when it when the news was like hitting and I anyway, Home Capital Group in Canada started to suffer a bank run 
on its deposits after an Ontario Securities Commission's report was filed that it had accused the subprime lender. They call it subprime. This is a US thing, but it'd be a B lender. And this is where you often get that conflated of why people don't want to borrow B side because they don't want to be subprime borrowers. But they were deceiving its investors in 2015 with its lending practices. As of early May 2017, the bank run was ongoing. In order to attempt a, uh, an an ally investor, customer, and overall market fears, Home Capital Group had begun to sell off separate business units of its company. As a result, long-lasting la- long bank runs, the company had lost more than 90% of its high-interest savings deposits, which is, you know, if you understand how banks make money, they take those deposits and then they le- they lever them up and they lend them out as mortgages. And Home Trust is a big mortgage lender. Um so when you hear bank, banks offering like these big GIC, big GIC rates, they're on the other end of that. They're taking all of that, pooling all that capital that you're putting into a GIC and they're lending that out as a mortgage. Um, so Home Capital Group had lost more than 10% of its workforce during the last long lasting bank run, which was originally caused by that report from the OSC. So what happened after that, Nick? Because this is where it's fun and kind of where it ties into why we're even talking about what's going on in the US. So shortly after that, Warren... You know, Warren, oh, your Warren buddy Buffett. Warren. Oh, yeah. yeah, your, yeah your homie Warren. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Warren Buffett, little known investor. Um, his company, Berkshire Hathaway, buys into the Troubled Home Capital Group. Before, sorry, before you continue with this one, there was this thing on Twitter where the, so that you can track like uh, flight tickers or whatever they're called, like flight. Uh, and somebody was posting this crazy thread on Twitter about how all of these private jets were flying from bank headquarters into Omaha over the weekend, which is where oh, Buffett man. is. So I'm wondering if he's kind of doing the same thing with all the, a bunch of these smaller U.S. regionals. Just, go, hey, guys, Everyone's, come on over. You want to bail out? Come on over for yeah, a Come coffee. over for some, no, it's McDonald's and uh, Diet yeah, Coke. Yeah, Diet Coke. Everyone's, everyone's going to go see the Oracle. I love it. Um, almost, almost mythological what's happening right now. Everyone's got to go see the Oracle. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway plans to acquire 400 million of common shares in home capital. So basically Warren Buffett to the rescue, uh, following allegations that home capital misled investors in its disclosures. However, home capital agreed last week to settle both the Ontario. And this is, last week is like, this is in 2017. I'm just sorry. Those yes. Are just, those are just headlines. Yeah. Yes. Uh, the Ontario Securities Commission allegations in a class action lawsuit. So when people say Canada's banking system is strong or less risky, are they right or are they wrong? This is actually funny because there's somebody posted this on Twitter as well. Um, the Canadian body that insures bank deposits is looking to hire a crisis communications officers right now. CDIC says the job posting a day before America's second largest bank failure has nothing to do with the events in the U.S., which is just like, I mean, even if it is coincidental, I mean, it just sucks for that. I was going to say, you can't, you can't keep that kind of internal or like yeah. off the, like yeah. the open job yeah. market. Like, yeah, come seriously. on, guys. Um, so Canada's banking system is strong as strong at its core. I won't I won't disagree with that. Um, we do have an oligopoly, which is very different from the U.S. So the U.S. has thousands of financial institutions. I think at the peak, like in the Great Depression, like four thousand or seven thousand banks failed or something. You know, two thousand eight, there was two thousand banks. Um, so it's easier to you just go start a bank in the states. Uh, in Canada, you can do like a lot of people are doing that with credit unions and stuff. But it's just like it's a really regulatorily heavily and probably for a reason why it's more difficult for things like this to happen. Um, so we have the big six banks. They're regulated by what's called the Bank Act. And they have these things called Basel III requirements. Very, very rigid set of criteria of how banks can behave to avoid things like this happening. And we also have deposit insurance, much like the FDIC. We have the CDIC, the people who are trying to hire that crisis communications officer right now. 
but it's worth noting that you're only insured up to, I think, 100K in, in the Canadian banking system, whereas it's 200, 250 in, in the US. So, Yeah, so let's talk about some of the different sizes and, and some of the smaller players and how they've had an effect. So smaller players with significant exposure to certain asset classes that are not heavily diversified, SVB being heavily tech-focused and having a duration mismatch. They invested in mortgages through MBSs, yet took tech company deposits. So bit of a mismatch there. And, and an anecdote, Braden, one of our pod fathers, posted a, a video on Twitter about these two tech founder guys. I don't know who they were, but I'm sure you can go find it. Um, these guys just bragging about what SVB had done for them, you know. Oh, you know, they came over and I, I said I needed a mortgage and I wanted a cottage and I wanted the second home. And they, you know, they brought every single person over and we were having champagne and blah, blah, blah. And it's just one of those videos that really did not age well. Um, anyways, uh, similar things, uh, to what happened to SVB at case in point home capital group, uh, which we just discussed comparable in size to a regional bank in the U.S. Now, think about what we've seen in Canada since the pandemic started. On the onset of COVID, many mix froze redemptions to, uh, for example, to protect against liquidity issues, just like that, uh, the one we've seen and we're hearing about currently in the U.S. Bridging Finance Incorporated said in a letter to investors around the same time that it has gated its funds indefinitely to maintain investor value and limit pandemic effects. Now, for me, this is just, you know, the bank saying, chill out. Don't let the sentiment, don't let the contagion sentiment um, of negativity and fear, you know, ruin yeah. this and cause a bank run. Oh, I think with a lot of those mix as well, like their their depositors, the people who are giving the money are investors, right? So it's not like, it's not a bank per se, it's a mortgage investment company. And exactly. So, you know, it's almost like a mortgage REIT in the States or a REIT. Like you're giving, you know, it's, you, they make it so that these investors can't take the money out. Whereas if a, ba- a bank can't just say, Hey, you can't take your money out, right? It's your money. They're holding it. Um, whereas with a MIC, they can, they can gate these or like, or, um, freeze these redemptions so that people can't get out. So they don't have a liquidity event happening, uh, like that where, you know, where they end up with a bank run. Um, and that was kind of, I think that was definitely the right move in hindsight, given what happened at the beginning of COVID. Um, but I think now we're sort of learning that in a lot of cases, we were kicking the can down the road. And then, you know, you can jump in here. The rate hiking cycle began. And yeah, that poor can just keeps getting kicked. Um, so we've, we saw what happened during the pandemic. Then the rate hiking cycle began and, uh, Canadian real estate lender Romson Investment Corp, who we've mentioned on the show before, halted redemptions on its largest fund after a number of borrowers stopped making payments. So again, we see that chain reaction. And Romspin would be a Canadian-based fund that invests in both uh, Canadian and U.S. Not invest, but lends to both Canadian and U.S. real estate. So, um, you know, again, just trying to give that context of why it's so important to have an understanding as a Canadian real estate investor of what's happening south of the border. So let's just like assess SVB's size. So keep in mind when we're t- examining the significance of this, that SVB was the 16th largest bank in the US. So it wasn't small. If you're thinking 2000 institutions, it's bigger than BMO or National Bank in Canada. Wow. These, yeah, these regional players, you know, they're, they're, if they start cracking and going up for sale, it could actually lead to further oligopolization. I don't even know if that's a word of US Ooh. banks. So the US does have a few oligopolistic players 
who are are likely salivating seeing a lot of these small regional players go up for distressed sale because they're like, oh, I, 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 you know, if you're JP Morgan, who's the biggest, you're like, oh, I've, I've always wanted a tech bank, you know, like I've always let wanted me just a little go. bank, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and so and JP Morgan's uh, market cap is like three point two trillion dollars. Next on the list behind them is Bank of America at two point four one trillion. I'm just going to go through the list of biggest banks in the U.S. because I love stats. I love thinking about things like this and contextualizing it, but also because at the bottom of this list is a Canadian lender. So Bank of America, 2.41 trillion, Citigroup, 1.77 trillion, Wells Fargo, 1.72 trillion. And that's kind of where the oligopoly, we can call it ends. Yeah. Those so are the be, big four, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So be mindful of the gap to the next one on the list here. So we had Wells Fargo of 1.72 trillion, US Bancorp, still massive, $585 million. Wow. Or, sorry, bill, sorry, $585 billion. And then the, but the, the Wells Fargo is in the trillions. Um, PNC Financial Services, 552 billion, Truist Bank, 546 billion, Goldman Sachs, which, you know, huge name, right? Just uh, 486 billion, Capital One Financial, 453 billion. And then we have TD Group US Holdings, 386 billion dollars. And that's, that's your Canadian lender that is number Love 10 on the list it. of largest U- US banks. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and I think this carries nicely to an article from Steph Hughes, uh, how the fallout from the SVB collapse could complicate life for some of Canada's biggest banks, especially those with operations in the US. And we're already hearing rumblings in the Canadian mortgage space that, you know, rates haven't gone up. Um, underwriting hasn't changed on paper, but there is a little bit of a, a reduction in risk tolerance. And I think banks are, are, they're thinking about people's job security. They're a little bit more reluctant to lend. And this is how that credit contraction really starts to roll throughout the market and create broad economic contraction. And, you know, we're already hearing the recession word thrown around like crazy now. Yeah, it's gotten a bit more common to hear that. But it was, it was very hush hush and, you know, a couple months ago. I want to talk about a company that has come up on the show before because we have used some of their reports and studies such as the, uh, bubble index, the global real estate bubble index, and that is UBS. So in this article, we're going to discuss UBS is buying Credit Suisse in a bid to halt banking crisis. This is kind of crazy. Um, Credit Suisse, you know, for those of you who don't know, um, it did not have, has not been having a great time since 2008. They kind of never really got their, you know, what back together, uh, after 08. Um, but you know, when you think Swiss banking, we've talked about UBS, Credit Suisse comes to mind. Obviously just the name itself carries weight. So this is from CNN out of London, England. Switzerland's biggest bank, UBS, has agreed to buy its ailing rival Credit Suisse in an emergency rescue deal aimed at stemming financial market panic unleashed by the failure of two American banks earlier this month. UBS today announced the takeover of Credit Suisse. The Swiss National Bank said its statement, it said the rescue would secure financial stability and protect protect the Swiss economy. Wow, what a statement. That's... uh. You got to be pretty powerful to be issuing statements like that. Now, UBS is paying 3 billion Swiss francs or $3.25 billion for Credit Suisse, about 60% less than the bank was worth when the markets closed on Friday. Not bad. Not a bad discount for UBS there. Credit Suisse shareholders will largely be wiped out, receiving the equivalent of just 76 Swiss francs in UBS shares for that stock, which was worth $1.8 Swiss francs 
on Friday. So basically 76 cents on the dollar. Is that right, Dan? Or is it even less than that? No, yeah, I think it's it's lower now, but yeah, I think they have it 76 cents on the dollar. Something like that is what they have it quoted at. Crazy. Now, extraordinarily, the deal will not need the approval of shareholders after the Swiss government agreed to change the law and remove any uncertainty about the deal. Wow. This is the crazy part, right? That we're like this literally is- getting into complete like this is complete emergency political moves happening at, at at among all levels of government like you're seeing it in the states where FDIC basically said they'll insure over 250,000 to avoid systemic risk now you're seeing banks literally violating the basically property laws of of shareholders agreements uh to to like <laughs> i think it's it's a little alarming that these are the lengths that we're going to this early in the game um kind of scary scary stuff actually it it is. It's you know makes me think of all like I'll tell you what there has there has been some great memes created about this stuff though. <laughs> Instagram and Twitter are having a field day. Um, now Credit Suisse has been losing the trust of investors and customers for years. In 2022, it recorded its worst loss since the global financial crisis, but confidence collapsed last week after it acknowledged material weakness, not something you want your bank acknowledging. Uh, that material weakness was in its bookkeeping and as the demise of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank spread fear about weaker institutions at the time when soaring interest rates have undermined the value of a lot of financial assets. Yeah, so I, it, it's, it almost seems like we're seeing a further oligopolization of the banking globally, which is, you know, one of those things that's worth thinking about because, you know, it seems like the economic agenda of people who are in power is to have less competitors. And you see this happening. And like, I'm not saying this in a conspiratorial way, but you see this happening with the amalgamation of more and more businesses under, you know, the Walmart brand or the Johnson and Johnson brand or whatever. And it's just going to continue happening with other types of businesses, banking being a decent example. So, you know, quickly, I'll give a definition or a Dan finition. Shout out to our listener, um, Alex <laughs> Magiacomo, who messaged me on Instagram. And he's like, you really missed the opportunity to, to call it a Dan finition. So I'm glad that I get one now. And I'm going to I'm actually go get some some theme music for myself. But an oligopoly is a state of limited competition in which the market is shared by a small number of producers or sellers. So think oligarchs when you think, you know, five political leaders in certain countries. Um, that's what it would be the economic comparison. Um, and so I think it's worth thinking about again. I mentioned how banks make money. They take deposits from people and then they lend those deposits out. Duration mismatch is what caused SVB to have some of these issues. Are there places where you could see similar issues happening in the Canadian real estate space or the Canadian banking space, but the real estate space as well? And the bigger question becomes, what is the, what does our banking world look like over the next several years? And how does this, how does this create a bull or bear case really for Canadian real estate investors? So why don't you quickly take me through what would be the most prominent bull case there, Nick? I would love to, Dan. A flight to quality, which refers to the herd-like behavior of investors to shift out of risky assets during financial downturns or bear markets, which we find ourselves in right now. This often occurs with a shift out of stocks and into something like bonds, where bonds are seen as relatively more safe and thus higher quality during these rough economic patches. So this is likely why we saw bond yields drop as SVB debacle started. People were rushing out of stocks and banks and into bonds. So demand for this safe or higher quality product went 
up. So yields for bonds went down. And this could be, you know, you could see similar things happening in real estate because real estate's been, you know, doing pretty well lately and people want to get into those secure assets uh, or even Bitcoin, which has zero counterparty risks. And, and I know I think it's crazy to think of that as like a, a safe asset, but it's, it's not what I'm deciding. It's what the market's deciding because Bitcoin ripped after this happened. So does this mean that the bond market isn't actually pricing in these these cuts as soon as possible? Yeah, so it is, you know, it it is a little bit different and you kind of have to think about it a little bit differently. I think it's momentarily detached as a forecasting mechanism and also like there's this chart I put in the bottom of the show notes here, but it's like the market is almost always wrong about what the Fed will do. So it is funny that like I kind of talk about the bond market a lot and what it's saying, how the market will price, but the market is literally almost always wrong. Um, eventually it gets it right, but it's like right before when it doesn't even matter, it's like, oh, that was the clear path anyway. Um, but it is likely pretty accurate in pricing in cuts sooner than before now that things are getting truly recessionary. And, and, you know, you guys know we kind of, we kind of mentioned almost predicted this. We've been talking about this for years. I don't, I don't want to like say that to, you know, to, um, to our own. So. Yeah. But, but, you know, I want people to, to know that we're really trying to be on the forefront of what matters to investors in the future and through their decision making processes. Um, because we, we really tried to get a good handle on this six months ago. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to that statement that we've that, you know said numerous times. History does not repeat itself, but it rhymes. And if you can go back and see the rhyme, the rhythm, and the trends, it becomes a le- little easier, easier to understand when and, and not just when, but why certain things are happening. So also, Dan, do you remember that tweet from uh, Macro Elf in, in all 11 episodes when inflation was above 3%, a subsequent recession led to a slowdown in CPI? Now, on average, it took 16.2 months to slow inflation from peak back down to 2%. And that peak to trough reduction in CPI was uh, as big as negative 6.8%. Yeah, it's interesting because I think we're probably eight months in now. Uh, to, About halfway, maybe. Yeah. Um, so basically, it's safe to say that we're heading towards reduced inflation more quickly now, which means rates can come down sooner than we anticipated before this happened. Because if we get to that neutral range, then rates don't need to be high anymore. Exactly. And the Canada five-year is already down below 3% again, which is the pricing mechanism for the five-year mortgage rates. Yeah, so exactly. So you typically will hear GOC or so Government of Canada bond yield plus 2%, GOC plus 2% or um, CMB's Canada mortgage bond plus 2%. But that 2%, that spread, the risk premium, um, from my perspective, will likely move up now that we're in a riskier environment. So we likely won't see those fixed rates come down meaningfully yet, which is why rates are stickier against bond yields on the way down as bond yields are coming down. Because again, you're seeing bond yields dropping because flight to quality, more and more people are buying bonds, meaning the pricing of bonds going go is going up, which means that the yields are going down. Um, I'm going to quickly do the bear case here. And then I think maybe worth wrapping up probably. And we can save this, this next Toronto branch of Silicon Valley bank for the news because it's not really that newsworthy. It was just kind of tying in the last component there. So the bear case is toxicity, contagion, or systemic risk. So what is systemic risk? Systemic risk can be defined as the risk associated with the collapse or failure of a company, industry, financial institution, or an entire economy. Um, so the bear case is all of these bank failures start causing more bank failures, which causes the failure of the broad financial system, and you end up with a 2008. Um, 
and I don't know, we like we're too early. We're in the first inning right now. Is it within the range of potential outcomes? Yeah, probably, probably pretty solid likelihood. Um, do you want to, do you want to just quickly read maybe the first, uh, that headline from the, the seizure of at Toronto branch, uh, Silicon Valley bank, and then, uh, maybe the first line or two. Yeah. So in in Canada, Canadian regulator seizes assets of Toronto branch of SVB in a statement, Canada's office of the superintendent of financial institutions says the bank operates in this country as a foreign bank branch based in Toronto, which it supervises, Etc. Uh, Etc. Et Canada assets to preserve their value in light of the decision made by the California Department of Financial Protection and Innovation to shut the bank down. By taking temporary control of the Canadian branch of Silicon Valley Bank, we are acting to protect the rights and interests of the bank's creditors. Um, so why don't we? Why, yeah, why don't we leave that there for now? And I think I think it's worth you know noting a bit of a wrap up for this. Like why? Yeah. Yeah, so I have a, a, a bit of a conclusion here. Like, what does this all mean? And and the the answer is kind of we don't really know yet. Um, but we know it's a little alarming. It seems that cost of capital isn't moving yet, but availability of capital is getting more scarce. Lenders are starting to manage risk. Um, bonds seem to be pricing in a recession and a and a sooner drop in rates, which we know you know eventually is bullish for for real estate. The question is. Is it bullish enough that it'll outweigh the bearishness of a recession? And that's, that's up to anybody's guess. My guess would be a recession. You know, you kind of get, you're going to see further downside as a result of a recession. Rates come down and eventually you get recovery on the other side of a recession as GDP starts growing again. That's my assessment. And that's based on a lot of historical research, which we cover in episode one of this podcast. Um, you know, I think even if yields come down, pricing could stay where it is because of that risk premium that I mentioned, um, because we're in a riskier market. So for example, the current fixed is 5.5% based on 3.5 government of Canada yield plus a 2% risk premium. Even if, you know, the, that drops to a 2.5% government of Canada yield, uh, you could end up with a 3% risk premium and rates stay at 5.5% until they need to come down because banks need to stimulate more income because we're in a recession. Uh, and speaking of recessions, you, as you mentioned, they have a hundred percent success rate of def- destroying inflation. So rates could come down sooner. The reason that they destroy inflation is because they destroy the economy and people don't have money. So they're not spending it. And so we're, now that we're in a hard landing or maybe even crash landing mode, um, you know, you're likely to see inflation happen as a result of that. Not, and this is how rate policy works. Rates constrict the economy, the economy crashes or goes into recession. Recession brings down inflation. Recession is deflationary. Um, and then the last thing is the Fed has to move this week. It'll likely be um, announced by the time this episode is out. If they hold, I think from my perspective, they're admitting that these bank failures in the US are a real problem. And now, you know, as real estate investors, reality is we need to think, okay, how should we be protecting our capital as, you know, against a recession rather than, you know, being an acquisition motor accumulation. And you start thinking about opportunities. Will there be, if you're sitting on a bag of cash, great. That's awesome. Um, and my guess is they'll in, increase by 25 bips to stay committed to that inflation target and have more room to correct in the event of recession, but also to not give too much, um, credit to the scary monster in the room, which is these bank failures. So I'm very interested to see how the next little bit plays out and whether or not my call was correct. Yeah, definitely an unfolding story and uh, definitely not over by any stretch of the imagination. So keep tuning in and we will be covering this and everything else that's happening in the economy because this is, I think, the sixth or seventh uh, once in a lifetime thing that's happened to millennials, right? So <laughs> keep tuning in and we will keep providing coverage as to how and why this affects 
affects you as a Canadian real estate investor. Thanks so much for tuning in. Hope you got a ton of value out of this. Uh, reach out if you have any questions and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group. License number 10317, agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.